morning. I'm, uh, I'm glad you're here this week. We're starting a new sermon series, uh, and it'll go through the month of June. Uh, the new series is called The Heart of a Champion. And what we're doing is we're going to take a different psalm each week, and those psalms will parallel events in the life of David in a way that reveals what it means to have the heart of a champion. Uh, and I think it's going to be really cool. I'm excited to see where, uh, where David, uh, Pastor David, not King David, where David takes it over the next three weeks. Um, and actually, since I'm starting the series, part of me kind of wanted to just set this up in a totally different way so that David gets back from Texas and, and then realizes, oh, the heart of a champion actually means to be like the 1990s American gladiators, you know. And we could have spent each week profiling Blaze and Gemini and Storm. That would have been fun. Um, of course, we, we also, we can't talk about the heart of a champion this week without mentioning Muhammad Ali. I think as we go through this series, a lot of the characteristics that we talk about are ones that you'll be able to see in his life. Muhammad Ali was more than just the greatest boxer. He was also a man of authenticity. He stood up for justice, equality, and hope. And there's a lot we can learn from people like Muhammad Ali. Uh, and so as we go through the next few weeks, uh, look for those characteristics, and I think you'll see some parallels uh, from his life. But for this series, uh, we'll stick with King David. He'll be fun too. He's not an American gladiator, but you know, we'll make do. And like I said, each week we'll, we'll dig into a different psalm and uh, we'll parallel that with events in the life of David. Uh, and so David, Pastor David, this, is, this might get confusing, but Pastor David and I were talking and, and we decided that it would be good to launch this series by focusing on Psalm 23. Uh, it's one of the most popular psalms. It's one of the most popular passages in all of the Bible, and it sets up the idea of having the heart of a champion uh, really well. And so even though uh, most of you can probably recite it from memory, uh, I'm going to read it. This is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. This is a great passage. You don't need me to tell you that. Uh, and there's a reason why it's so popular and why it's so often connected with funeral services and other things we do to remember people. And it's because it's comforting. It's reassuring you can picture all of it in your mind. You can see the green pastures. You can see the quiet waters. You can see the dark valley. You can see the prepared table. These are powerful images, and they create a promise 
that we all hope our lives end with. And so as you look at it, Psalm 23 has three main parts. It starts with the metaphor of God as shepherd, and it ends with the metaphor of God as host, and in between is this anecdote about the valley. And so the reason this passage is so comforting and so reassuring is because it teaches one main message. God will provide. You can see it here in the, in the metaphor of God as shepherd. You can see the needs that are met. Rest, water, spiritual fulfillment, safety. And likewise, the, the metaphor of God as host. The host's job is to provide for the needs of the guest. And you can see those needs met here as well. Food, protection, and blessing. And then in between is the promise that even when life is at its lowest point, God is still there. It's a really great promise. God meets our needs and God is always there. God will provide. I like this psalm. I memorized this psalm for something in middle school. I couldn't tell you now what the event was and the purpose of the event was to get me to memorize the psalm and that was accomplished because I still remember it, but I don't remember the event. But I'll be honest, the older I get, the more this psalm challenges me. I read this and I think, man, David just seems so sure. He seems so sure that God will provide, but in my life it never seems that simple. When things aren't going well, I have a tendency to bail water with a leaky bucket before I even remember to trust God. But when things are going well, it's easy for me to take all the credit for myself. Sometimes I find myself wondering if this psalm is so popular because everyone else is living out this promise and I'm just missing it. Or maybe this psalm is popular because we all want to trust God this completely and we're still searching for a way to do that. My uh, my grandfather was a pastor in North Carolina for decades and he always had that sort of old pastoral wisdom about him, you know, the kind of wisdom that David one day might have. Um, And... (laughs) So one weekend, Tori and I were both in seminary, and we went to see him. Uh, While we were there, we spent several hours just sitting and talking, asking questions, uh, things that are on the minds of seminary students. And one of the questions that I asked him is how a minister knows where he or she is called to be. Um, His response was something to the effect of, you just have to trust God to lead you. I remember thinking, you know, I sure hope God sends text messages because I'm not sure I'm going to get it. Um, (laughs) I don't know about you, but for me, the promise that God will provide if we trust enough seems almost too simple, too good to be true even. It's like we want it to be a vending machine where if you put in enough pieces of trust, then out comes God's provision. Betting on myself most of the time just feels safer. 
And so when we start talking about the heart of a champion, Psalm 23 suggests that those are the people who fully trust God to provide for their needs. That's challenging. Tradition says that David wrote this psalm, and so it makes me wonder, was David really always this sure? Did David have the kind of trust that makes the heart of a champion from the very beginning? And if so, why can't I seem to get there and sustain it? The good news for me, and maybe for you, is David wasn't always this sure. David had his moments just like the rest of us. When we first meet David, he's just a little kid. He's the youngest of eight sons, and he's a shepherd. And while shepherd might make a great metaphor for God, in real life, it was a lowly job. It was a dirty job. It was an isolating job. And it wasn't a job that people envied very often. When Samuel shows up to tell Jesse that one of his sons would be anointed the next king, Jesse doesn't even bother to call David in from the fields for the ceremony. I mean, you would think that even if he didn't expect David to get picked, he'd still invite him to the party, right? So once David finally gets there, sheep in tow, God says, yep, he's the one. He's not the biggest or the strongest or the fastest or even the best looking, but God chooses David because of his heart. 1 Samuel 13 tells us that God was looking for a king after God's own heart. And then in chapter 16, God reminds Samuel that God looks at the heart and not the outward appearance. The heart is the only thing that matters in this process. And so if God chose David based on his heart, does that mean that David had the heart of a champion even as a little kid? I don't think so. I mean, and if it does, then that doesn't leave much hope for the rest of us in this conversation. I don't feel like I have this heart of a champion all the time now, and please don't ask me about when I was David's age in middle school. <laughs> we build these Bible characters up to this unattainable level of awesomeness. We make them these faith heroes, when in reality, they were human just like us. And they journeyed with God just like us. And so in this case, young David, he wasn't as sure of God or maybe anything as he was later in life when he wrote Psalm 23. But even so, there's clearly something about David's heart that sets him apart from the others. And so when we look at the rest of, of David's life, the thing that seems to make him different is his ability to trust God to provide. Now, he wasn't always good at it, but it was a priority for him. And the desire to put God first is what let David's heart grow into the heart of a champion. And so when I read Psalm 23, I think, yeah, I mean, the heart of a champion means you trust God to provide. But like we've talked about, I don't, I don't see little kid David grasping this yet. Psalm 23 makes more sense to me as something that David would have written later in life, as he's maybe even on his deathbed, looking back over all of his journey, 
And he sees the ups and downs, the successes and the failures, and the times when he trusted God, and the times when he tries to do things on his own. And so when he looks back, he sees God there in all of those moments, but in the moments when he trusted God, God provided. David looks back and he remembers the valley against Goliath, saying no to the armor, selecting the stones, being mocked by soldiers in both armies, and ultimately defeating the giant Goliath. David trusts and God provides. But at the same time, David looks back and remembers the affair with Bathsheba and trying to cover it up by having her husband murdered. The lies to cover lies, the deceit, the need to dig out of his own hole. God was still there, but David didn't act like he needed any help. These ups and downs are true for all the other events of David's life too. You can look at when David became friends with Jonathan, when David finally was made king, when David brought the ark of God into the city. In those moments, David trusted and God provided. But later when David wants to take a census of the nation of Israel and count all the people who are of age for military service, God gets upset. David was trying to do things on his own. All of these things come out of David trusting or not trusting God. And the difference in the two is when David decides to give up his control. David allows himself, as king no less, to be vulnerable in a way that lets God lead. It's no wonder that when he's reflecting back and he writes Psalm 23, he starts with the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. David puts himself in the place of the sheep and lets God provide. That's what leads us to the heart of a champion, letting God be our shepherd. David recognizes this, and I like to think that as he's looking back, he sees himself grow into that potential. The more David learns to trust God in all things, the more David's heart becomes the heart of a champion. And so how do we get our heart to mirror that? I mean, the simple answer is that we learn from David. We trust God to provide, we give up control, we make ourselves vulnerable, and we let God be the shepherd. I mean, it's that simple, right? That's all you got to do, no big deal. Um, I mean, I could stop the sermon right here, we could all go uh, to lunch, uh, but by the time we're done eating, nothing will have changed because I don't honestly know anyone who's actually really good at this. And it's so personal, too. If it was simple, Psalm 23 wouldn't be so challenging, and the word vulnerability wouldn't scare us so much. The idea, trust God and God will provide, sounds so great and comforting, and yet I can't seem to get a handle on it for my own life. So how do we do this? I think 
pretty soon David's going to stop asking me to preach because every time I do it, it seems like I stand up here and say, I don't know the answer. <laughs> but I don't. I don't. I don't know the answer. I mean, I think part of it involves realizing that God isn't going to make us king of Israel. And God isn't going to give us permission to sling stones at the foreheads of our enemies. And God isn't going to ask us to carry the Ark of the Covenant all over town. God will provide doesn't mean we'll be made rich or we won't ever be hungry or we'll be free from sickness or we'll be saved from pain. God will provide doesn't mean we won't ever worry or be anxious. God will provide means that God is there with us and we're never walking alone. And sometimes just repeating that promise to ourselves can help a little bit. At the end of the day, though, it's still about control. The times David is most trusting of God is the times when David lets God be in control. And we live in a culture that teaches control means power. And control means success. Control might mean riches. Control definitely means comfort. We're taught from an early age that maintaining control is a good thing. And so it's no wonder this is so difficult for us. I don't even want someone choosing what I have for lunch, much less making big life decisions for me. This reminds me, this conversation reminds me of a scene from the first uh, Star Wars movie. Uh, and by that I mean the original, A New Hope, not those apocryphal prequels that were made later, right? Okay, so the original Star Wars movie, at the end of the movie, when the rebels are trying to blow up the Death Star, Luke flies his X-Wing down into the trench of the base. His goal is to shoot proton torpedoes into this tiny exhaust vent so that they can travel down the core of the ship and blow it up from the inside out. Simple, right? Um, so Luke is flying his X-Wing uh, towards the vent. He turns on his targeting computer, and he takes aim. He's trained for this moment. I mean, after all, he used to bullseye womp rats with his T-16 back home, right? <laughs> so the computer is zeroing in on the target, and suddenly he hears the voice of his mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan says, use the force, Luke. And Luke pauses and looks around and probably thinks, well, that's creepy. I've never heard his voice like that before, right? But he goes back to his computer and Obi-Wan says, let go. And then he adds, trust me. Luke switches off his targeting computer. The people at the rebel base think something must be wrong, but Luke knows what he's doing. He gives up control. He lets the force guide him. So Luke fires his proton torpedoes, and now, spoiler alert, if you're 40 years behind on your movie viewing, I'm going to spoil the ending for you. But he fires his proton torpedoes, they hit the opening in the vent perfectly, they go down to the core, the rebel ships all get out of harm's way, and the Death Star explodes, and the galaxy is saved, and it's one of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> Cinematic magic. But the point here is that Luke gives up control 
in a defining moment for him and for the entire galaxy, Luke gives up control. And so in 2016 in America, giving up control doesn't mean that we get to use the force to blow up the Death Star. Our moments probably won't make cinematic magic. They won't usually change the course of the entire galaxy. But giving up control in our society does fly in the face of culture. Giving up control is a radical move that makes us different. Giving up control might look like making church a priority. Giving up control might look like working to strengthen our relationship with God because you can't trust someone you don't know. Giving up control might look like setting aside our ego and our need to be right. I told you um, at the beginning that when Tori and I were in seminary, we went to visit my, my grandfather one weekend. And the reason for that visit is a cool, cool story. Uh, so we were in class one day, it was faith development class, and an older retired pastor named Dr. Gannon was, was talking to us that day. Uh, Dr. Gannon's an amazing man, he's full of wisdom, and he's a huge asset for seminarians. And as class was finishing up, one of our friends behind us said to the person next to her, I wish Dr. Gannon was my grandfather. And I leaned over to Tori and said, I have a grandfather like that. And so two weekends later, we get in the car and we drive from Atlanta to Lumberton, North Carolina uh, to visit him. And now I am not an impulsive person. I don't make decisions on the fly. I'm not the kind of person who just randomly gets in my car and drives places. When David asked me to preach a week ago, I was like, what? Right? That's not who I am, okay? And so this particular weekend, we shuffle around our schedule and we work ahead on our assignments and we left. Tori met him for the first time. We sat, we talked, we asked questions. We went and got him Wendy's with a Frosty so he didn't have to eat the food as a retirement community. <laughs> My grandfather passed away a month after that visit. We read Psalm 23 at his funeral. So for me, the key to learning to trust God is often learned in hindsight. So moving forward, I need to learn how to live into that, how to give up control in the present moment. What's the key for you? What is it that's preventing you from getting, giving up control and letting God lead? Is it pride? Is it a fear of failure? Is it a need to know God better before you can trust that much? David developed the heart of a champion because he trusted God to be his shepherd. He trusted God to provide for his needs. And the way that we get there is to give up control. If we want the heart of a champion, giving up control is the only way to mean it when we say, the Lord is my shepherd. 